Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory Heroes, and welcome to a very special episode of Whiny About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two, count them two, longtime besties with breasties talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of, or maybe you have because you're super smart. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And if you're a Patreon, you're seeing a lot of hand motion right now, and you're very uncomfortable with it, but it's happening. If you're a regular listener, you're you'll missing be, out. You're missing out. So this is a very special episode. This is one of our first V to A. One of our first. It is our it first. It is our first. Did I say one of our first? <laughs> yeah, you did. I'm stressed out seeing myself. I hate all of that going on. <laughs> not look. But this is one of our first, this, okay, I did it again. This is our first V to A Patreon exclusive episode. So regular listeners, you're still going to get that amazing, sweet, sweet wine in your ears. But our Patreon listeners sweet ear feel. are going to get to take it all in with their They're eyes. They're getting their eye feel. Mm, yeah, <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> and if you want to see what the fuck is going on right now, because it's already gotten completely out of control, you can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And you can also get this a few days early. Yep. Because these will release, release on Wednesday Wednesdays. before the Monday when the oh, audio releases. So we love you that much, patrons. We do our because whiners. you're the best. Unless you can come up with a better name, we're going to call you whiners. Our whiners and diners. See, I don't like that. We're just sticking with whiners. I'm sorry. We're not giving you any food. (laughs) I'm not allowed to eat on this podcast. Because if you don't eat, you get drunk faster. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Um, Let's jump into our wine and then we have a say their name. We do. And we're going to do the wine first because our say their name is a huge fucking bummer. Right. So today is sad because this is going to be like two weeks late, but it yeah. is what it is. So uh, this it, this was my wine this week and it is called Phantom. Ooh. <laughs> Put on your 3D glasses, patrons. I, I regret uh, doing a video episode. Uh, this may be our only one. So uh, I got this, I believe, from my Wine Angels box. Maybe not. I don't not. think so. No, because it doesn't call been... me an angel. No, it doesn't. <laughs> That's well, like the, the I knew check. that because it had like the description on the cork of what bogle or boggle meant are you sure this is my wine because i feel like i would remember picking this out it might have been mine okay well i'm adopting it because she wanted it's a red spooky and scottish so uh this is phantom it's a 2016 uh pri- uh proprietary red from california and the back says <clears throat> sexy NPR voice we call him the phantom a ghostly figure that wanders the boggle cellars at night, fleeting glimpses of muddy work boots and blue jeans, then gone. Does the phantom really exist? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I love that. There's no mystery. He deaf is real. <laughs> has it inspired us? Absolutely. Just says absolutely, but I'm embellishing because that's my right as a drinker. It totally is mine. Wild berries and black pepper are framed by the influence of oak with baking spices and a hint of toasty vanilla. For more phantom stories, oh, you can interact with it yeah. on your phone. I'm not doing that right now because I'll take so 10 minutes to download. So here's what they said at the wine store because it is mine. Oh, my God, Kelly. 
Floral aromas of violets and rose petals dance with wild strawberries on the nose of this wine. The mouthfeel silky and refined. Bright with ripe chokecherry and currant, touches of tobacco and worn leather round out the sip. Emily lost her wine. No, where where did you put the cork? Oh, I threw it in the thing. Oh, because the cork says boggle, which is the Scotch word for, for phantom. phantom. And yeah. I thought that was cute. Because I mean, you, you could dig it, it out of there. I'm not fucking doing that. So... Let's cheers and taste the wine before we get into our really sad state. Well, name. first of all, uh, for Patreon listeners, I just want to point out you may have noticed that Kelly and I are soups fancy. And that's because for these V to A videos, we're going to be doing dress up themes. And today's theme is fancy, fancy and as feminist. Fuck. <laughs> fancy, fancy as, as fucking feminist. feminist. <laughs> something, something like that. So I'm like all decked out in the prom gear here. I'm just going to do a quick sneak peek. She gets like stuck. I can't get that far because my headphones. It's okay. But I don't have headphones. Ooh, ooh. Oomps, oomps, oomps. Work that butt. Work that ass. Uh, I'm not uh, going to twerk for the camera. Uh, that is, that. that's at the $20 Patreon yeah. level. <laughs> that's just for you. It's a private video. Um, All right. Well, cheers yeah. to our first V to A Patreon episode. Cheers to you, cheers patrons. Cheers to you, patrons. Look, you get an extra cheer, too. Good clank. This is another one of those wines that on the sign it mentions tobacco and leather. Yeah. And I'm like, why do you put that? But I can this taste it. It tastes like Scotland in a weird way because it's it's earthy and, and kind of smoky. smoky. And, yeah. yeah. And full and a little spooky because co- as, as gorgeous as Scotland is, that place is spooky. I do think as I grabbed this purposely for October. God, we are already fucking this up. Whatever. Because I grabbed six wines and I was like, yeah, this yep. will get, you know, well, yeah that would have gotten me into October. Mm. I can like. I don't smell know what chokeberry and currant is, but this wine tastes real good. Emily wanted a red, and this is like one of our only reds. Apparently. Yeah, otherwise we're gonna redrink that cat too. Because I really I like told that her this one. episode is too special to redrink a wine. It is because it's for you. All right. Uh, well, we do have a say their name today, and uh, by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be very late. But we literally just found out about this about ten minutes ago. Um, we are devastated we to are. learn of the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth, Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg. She was 87 years old and she died of complications, complications from, from pancreatic, pancreatic cancer. cancer. And she has she was appointed, I think She's it was 1996. So she was on the Supreme Court forever. And she's been this great advocate for equal rights, justice for women, immigrants. She's been an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. She's just been such an asset to have on the highest court in the United States. And especially now, um, there's a lot of anxiety there's uh there's sadness there's anger there i'm not at her because she was there's yeah a lot of people that are scared of what's going to happen now and uh so check on your friends check on the people in your life who may be affected uh yeah check on your feminists but uh she has she has left us an amazing legacy that inspires all of us to stand up for justice and for what is right and to excel oh, yeah. and to work. I mean, I, I we could spend the whole episode naming off all of her positive qualities and what she's given to the world. So she did dictate to her granddaughter um, 
just a few days ago, and this is a quote, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Oh, my God. So she knows. She, she knows what's coming. Yeah. And what, I mean, what an awful burden to have oh, yeah. while you're dying. Because she worked up and she didn't retire. Like she was working right up to the end. And I can't imagine because she understands the consequences of her. She does. Passing away. Um, she does. And she's she's just amazing. There's another quote of hers that I really like that she said. I don't know when she said it, but she said, my mother told me to be a lady. And for her, that meant be your own person. Be independent. I love that. And I love that. And I'm like, I'm just going to adopt you as my own grandma. And that's going to be my saying. <laughs> Dude, she's now. all of our grandmas. She, she, she really is. She's Amazing. And she and she kind of became a rock star, so she's known as like the, the notorious, notorious RB, RBG. RBG. I love that. And uh, so we are going to cheers to the notorious RBG Ruth Bader Ginsburg to her life, to her legacy, and may she inspire all of us to stand up always. As I try not to whine, cry. I know. Th this is a good, sad one. It is. Ugh. Like the slow I, uh, strum of a bag. I was literally. Strum. The slow. The, sl the, the sad slow squeeze slow of a bagpipe. Hum is what I was going yeah. for. Hum of a bagpipe. But I was, I was, we're doing like a double recording right now. So this is part two is part of two. our evening. Uh, so we're already a little in it. So we were taking a break. I was in the restroom and I was scrolling through Facebook. I was and upstairs a friend, pouring our wine and all of a sudden I just hear, fuck! I screamed while pissing on the toilet because I, a friend posted something Scared that was kind me. of I thought vague she dropped her phone about our, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I was like, what the fuck happened to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And I, I was like, oh my God, 11 minutes ago, CNN posted that she had passed away. I'm like, oh my fucking God. Right. Christ. Yeah. But we are still going to try to have a fun episode because that is what we do. And we've got plenty of wine to get us through it. We have extra bottles if needed. Guys, this is our little wine shelf, and you can't really see it very well, but there's a ton of wine down here. This is fully, fully appropriate for right now. We have our little towel that says sip happens, happens wine, wine a lot, lot. and we're going to wine like fucking queens tonight. Woo! All right. I get to go first. I'm excited for your story. Mine's real long. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to I'm going to be doing like an interpretive dance over here. That's like really That's like uncomfortable 45 minutes for everyone. long cuz my story's long. Yeah. I should have brought weights and just like <laughs> the done this the whole time. time and then people watching if you can count how many reps I do, you get a t-shirt. <laughs> if you're that dedicated. And I need to go like real slow sometimes and then be like <laughs> so that it's, you know, so that it's a I challenge. The air. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm covering Rachel Carson. All right. So Rachel Carson was born on May 27th, 1907. So, you know, we're going back a ways. Decent ways. Yeah. She was born on a family farm in Springdale, Pennsylvania. I've never been to Pennsylvania. I haven't either. 
She was the daughter of Maria and Robert Carson. Her father was an insurance salesman, and she spent a lot of time exploring her family farm, which was hap- which was 65 acres. So it's, it's a big farm. I was going to say, I am not an acre kind of person. Like, I don't have a lot of concept for that much, I mean, but it sounds figure, like a lot. You figure most house acres, like I think my house is on like 0.22 acres. I, I was going to say, like, two acres is a decent amount of yeah. land so and 65. Acres. I assume they must have raised... Some type of animal. I, I like know. to think that the dad wanted to buy 69 and the wife was like, no. Yeah, right. I know what you're trying to say. She's I'm like, not no, ready to have that conversation. <laughs> we're doing 65. Um, she was an avid reader from as soon as she could read. She often uh, liked writing, reading stories about animals. Um, so she, she began reading at age eight, which is actually fairly young. Um, and her first story was published at age 10. What? Yeah. Good grief, girl. It was published in the St. Nicholas Magazine, which was one of her favorite magazines. She also enjoyed the works of Beatrix Potter and the novels of Jean Stratton Porter. In her teens, she really liked Herman Melville, Joseph Conrad, and Robert Louis Stevens. Wow. So all the big names. Yep. She really, really liked books on the natural world, particularly the ocean. That was kind of the the common thread. I was going to say that what, Melville with Moby Dick. Yep. I'm sorry, if she's a child and she can get through Moby Dick, she is already, like, that's enough I mean, to talk teen, about her. That's teen years. Yeah, but still, that them. shit is dense. Oh, yeah, it is. It's I thick. don't think I've ever read Moby Dick, and I don't know if I could. I don't want to. I get I the gist. I kind of want to. I know the whale kills a bunch of people. It's great. The story that inspired Moby Dick is actually truly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, because it was basically the same thing, and all the dudes got stranded in a little boat forever and almost all died, and they that's had to, fun. like, eat each other and, like, maybe killed each other for food. So it's like the ocean version of the Donner Party. Yeah, kind of. And it's funny because they they found this like crappy little nothing of an island in the middle of it. And two guys got off and they're like, we're sick of being in the ocean. We're sick of being in this fucking boat. We're going to stay on the island. Yeah, you're going to die. And I'm thinking, wow, yeah, those guys are fucked. Nope. They found them and they had been living eating crabs. Touche. Yeah, and then they didn't have to deal with any of the cannibalism. Right, and so like two of them. Good smart them. choices were made. Now you know. If you're ever stranded in a boat and you find a tiny island, get the fuck off that boat. Get on get Crab Island on the crab. now. Get on the crab. Um, <laughs> so Rachel attended Spring uh, Springdale Small School through 10th grade, and then she did go on to complete high school in Parnassus, Pennsylvania, graduating in 1925 at the top of her class. Mind you, it was only 44 students. But still. Uh, still, I was definitely not even like the 44th student right. in my class. Um, she would go on to attend the Pennsylvania College for Women, um, originally studying English and then switching her major to biology. Mm. So, you know. I'm kind of surprised she I she didn't go for English because it just seems like she's really into the lit. Right. But it seems more of the subject matter exactly. through the lit. Um, she did continue contributing to her school's student newspaper even when she changed her major, though. Because obviously she's been writing she's since a good the age writer. of fucking 10. Yeah, you can be a science person and be a good writer. They're not mutually exclusive. Right. She did get early admittance to John Hopkins University in 1928. But she wasn't able to afford the tuition, so she, for her senior year, she had to stay at the Pennsylvania College for Women. Welcome to America. Right. Can't afford an education. 
Seriously, Unless though. you go in debt forever and then your life is kind of over. I'm putting myself more in debt and I'm like. Ugh. I actually, my freshman year of college, I uh, had to go to the hospital. I was really sick and dehydrated. And uh, and you're like, my life is over. I want to be paying this for the rest of it. <laughs> well, no, it was uh, one of the nurses was like, oh, so you're in college? I'm like, oh, yeah. And she goes, yeah. I remember when I was in college. Yeah. I'm still paying for that shit. I'm in my 40s. I'm still paying for that. And I was like. Why would you tell me this? I'm a patient at the hospital and I'm a freshman in college. Why would you just be like, you're screwed? Yeah, why would you just be like, good for you? <laughs> she like pointed a withered finger and she's like, screwed. <laughs> yeah, she slowly backs out of the room. Screwed. <laughs> God damn oh, it. That's funny. Ugh. Anyways, so she com- <laughs> she completed her um, education at Pennsylvania College and she graduated magna cum laude in 1929 which I think is like the highest honor because it's like summa cum laude and then there's magna cum laude which is like like you did good yeah Um, you come loud (laughs) 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 give me a second she then I know that was was good that was bad person (laughs) um after she did a summer course in marine biology at a marine biology laboratory and then continued her studies and zoology and genetics at john hopkins so after she fully graduated she did go on to actually go to john hopkins okay um during her that first year of graduate school at john hopkins um she decided to become a part-time student taking an assistantship with raymond pearl who was a biologist at John Hopkins, but she was like, okay, I need money. Um, so she worked in his laboratory and went to school. So she became yeah. a part-time student versus a full-time student. Again, welcome to America. Right? That's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> um, Except she w- you're full working full-time. Yes, and I'm technically a full-time student. Yeah. You're all in. I'm all in. Your balls I'm, deep in that. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> God damn, your you balls deep in right that. Right out of my mind. Here's the thing. In our last episode, balls you said deep in my ast- life. You said astronomical when I was gonna say it, and I was like going between that and a different word. And I'm like, you're in my head, and I love it. No, you and told me to get out. Now I'm in your head. And I'm just going to make a little home. I'm going to like put down a mat. I'm going to curl up in the corner. Make a little tent. I'm going okay to get that. drunk. Play a little blanket tent. Maybe do a little rage drinking. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> if I just start going crazy, that's Emily fucking We'll see where the head, wine takes right? me. <laughs> Woo. Um, so she was working with rats and drosophila, which is a type of fly. Oh, okay. At this um, biologist laboratory. Um, and like I said, it was to earn money. And then she had a few false starts with her dissertation that's how they like said it in the article i read and i'm like i really like that because she, she tried different research studies with uh pit vipers and squirrels and it didn't really pan out i can make them be friends right no i, I can make them i would be assume friends. they were separate but i don't know um but she did eventually complete a dissertation project on the embryonic development of the pronifrous in fish which is an excretory gland i didn't look further i read the word excretory gland or excretory organ, and I'm like, nope, don't need to know more about this. So something about fish anuses. Yeah, basically. Awesome. That was her dissertation. Well, I she was so sick of the pit vipers and the fucking squirrels. She's like, fish shit, that's reliable. I, I can this. count yeah, on right. that. So she did go on to earn her master's degree in zoology in 1932. She intended originally to continue for her doctorate, but she was forced to leave John Hopkins um to support her family during the Great Depression. Oh, she had to take a full-time... Um, shit. She did get a full-time teaching position, but she was, you know... 
She had to support her mom and dad. Shit was hard. And sister. Mom and dad and sister. That's why they called it the Great Depression. Right. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, middle of the Great Depression, uh, 1935, her father suddenly died. He just... Did you say thankfully? No, I said unfortunately. Oh, I'm like... I think I said unfortunately. Are you doing this like one less mouth to feed kind of thing? (laughs) Like thankfully her dad... unfortunately um her father died suddenly obviously like that worsened their already financial situation because her father was the breadwinner their mom didn't work yeah um so she was the sole caregiver and she had her mom was aging so she had to care for her mother um however her undergraduate biology mentor who was mary scott skinker which is a great last name. Amazing name. I also love how there's another like woman, woman. higher up. I know. I'm like, that's great that, that her mentor was a yeah. woman and not a guy. Great. Yes. Um at so at the urging of Mary, she settled for a temporary position with the US Bureau of Fisheries, which would later become what is it? Fish wildlife. and wildlife. Yeah, fish and wildlife or whatever it is today. Yeah. Because fish aren't wild. They're no. totally tame. But she settled. They're also not alive. <laughs> she settled for that job. Okay. Uh, writing radio copy for a series of weekly educational broadcasts entitled Romance Under the Waters. That's kind of a. Okay. Hold on. Put a pin in that romance shit. <laughs> That's kind of a great job because she's she's clearly a very like. Uh, oh, she likes writing. Writer. Yeah, she's a like, writer. It's, it's, ah. <laughs> It's obviously putting her two loves together, like yeah. zoology and writing. So is she writing like romance I paperbacks about fish? Oh, here it goes. Is did it's, she write the the what is it, the shape of water? Is that where Guillermo del Toro got his idea? Yes. I think so. Cursory so. headcanon. Anyways, um, so this was a series of fifty two seven minute programs focused on aquatic life and was intended to generate public interest in fish biology and in the work of the bureau. That's awesome. So that, that I would is, also be interested in fish Times fucking. Said. Like um there were several people before Rachel that had tried to write this series and it didn't do well because at all. It's really hard to make um, fish interesting. However, Rachel did really well and it actually became a really big success when she wrote it, which is great. Probably because she, you know, she's been writing stories and stuff for a yeah. while. So she probably knew how to, like, put a nice twist on it. Um, during this time, she was also writing articles about just general mo- uh, the marine life in the Chesapeake Bay um, and submitting it to local newspapers. So she was like, yeah, a little side hustle over there. Yeah. Um, her supervisor was super happy that this radio series was finally taking off. Um, and asked her to write a public brochure for the Bureau of Fisheries because, you know, people don't really know what they do or care, probably. I'm in both camps. Yeah, I right. don't get it and I don't care to get it. Exactly. I'm glad they're doing whatever they're doing because I know, like, logically it's important to take care of every level of the ecosystem. Well, and like, yeah, I'm sure I it needs to be regulated. Understand. <laughs> but I don't really care. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Fish. He also, besides like being really happy with her, he also worked to secure her a full time position because at this time she was. She was like a like not part time but like a temporary position basically. She was kind of like lower rung. Well, yeah, basically it was probably like, hey, you have these fifty two seven minute programs to write, and then once you're done, you're done. But so he got her a full time position, um, and so in order to do that, you had to, you had to sit for a civil service exam, which I don't know what that is, but I assume it's stuff about the bureau you're entering. Yeah, um, she outscored 
every other applicant and became the second woman hired by the Bureau of Fisheries. Oh my God. I know. That's pretty awesome. She was She's hired, a mermaid, basically. She, she was hired as a junior aquatic biologist, aka mermaid. AKA, baby baby yeah. mermaid. Yeah, that, that's what her name tag said. It said uh Rachel. Uh, Rachel baby mermaid. Whatever the title was. Mermaid. Junior aquatic Junior biologist. aquatic mermaid biologist. There you go. <laughs> um so during her this full-time position, um, her main responsibilities became to analyze and report field data on fish populations and to write brochures and other literature for the public. Awesome. Because obviously she kind of has a knack for like yeah. the public-facing sphere of this. I know I keep hitting things and Emily's going to get real annoyed. Except you don't have to edit this episode. I do. I was um, going to say, I'm like loving every time you punch your mic because I'm like, <laughs> you know how it feels. Step into my hell. Um, so she used her research and a lot. She did a lot of consultations with other marine biologists as a starting point to kind of know what she was getting into. And she, during this time, while still working for the Bureau, she was writing a steady stream of articles, particularly for the Baltimore Sun and other newspapers in the area. Um, however, unfortunately, her family was struck by another tragedy in January of 1937 and her her responsibilities to her family kind of increased when her older sister died, leaving Rachel um, her the sole breadwinner not only for her mother but now for her two nieces that were orphans. Oh shit! Yeah, that sucks. So now she was like, I definitely need to keep this job that I don't like. I know that like at the time, especially in the Great Depression, when you know food is not largely accessible not just because no one can afford it because no one's growing it because of the dust bowl which is a whole different like level of hell but like it just seems like okay if someone else could like die and not in my family right because be i've had two deaths and i'm supporting a fuck ton of people and it's stressful right exactly in 19 in july of 1937 the atlantic monthly accepted a revised essay known as the world of waters this was what she had actually originally written for the fisheries brochure, but her supervisor had deemed it too good to be for their brochure. Oh! <laughs> so she now got a revised version of it published. Um, it ended up being published under the name Undersea instead of The World of Waters, and it was a narrative journey along the ocean floor. That sounds amazing. Right? I'm like, I, I would, would watch read it that documentary. I would even read it. Like, I have I a very too. active imagination. But I like seeing sharks and stuff. Right? It would be good on IMAX. Oh, my. God, I want to go back to the zoo, Kelly. They I want to go to the IMAX zoo. Anymore. They got rid of their IMAX. So what? we'd have to go to the Science Museum. What which are they is also used for okay. that massive building? I don't know if they've repurposed it yet. Like, IMAX was the one that was like, now nah, we're done. We should put dinosaurs in there. Yeah. I want dinosaurs year round because the zoo only does it during the summer. Well, and that <sighs> changes depending on, like, what they like they do like this year it wasn't dinosaurs they had a fall or not this year last year they had a fall thing that was pumpkins instead which was actually really neat it was like a jack-o'-lantern thing oh i didn't know that see i thought they did dinosaurs every summer Mm -hmm. it changes anyways so um this marked a major turning point for rachel uh like in her writing career because all of a sudden like this huge you have so much tool under your skirt that you I know this you skirt is fucking massive. I'm really worried because in our last episode, I'm like, every time I breathe, I feel like it's just crinkling. No, and I'm not. like, oh, my God, it's just going to be um, the whole episode. That's funny. So she was actually con- contacted by Simon & Schuster, which is a big publishing company, 
um, after Undersea was published, and they asked they asked her to expand Undersea, which was just an essay at that point, into a full novel or a, a book. Okay, you know, and she did it. She several years of writing um, in 1941 finally produced Under the Sea Wind. That was the title of the book. Um, it received excellent reviews, but unfortunately, kind of sold poorly. Um, however, her article writing was still doing super well. Well, and I wonder what the, like, if they were going for a general audience or more of an academic audience, because I feel like it would be hard to get the layman to purchase a book that they basically takes you on a tour of the sea. Like, I think that's really cool, but not everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, in 1945, Rachel attempted to leave the bureau. Um, unfortunately there weren't a lot of jobs for naturalists at that point. Um, and money in general was more focused on technical fields in the wake of the Manhattan Project. It's 1945. Oh, um, nice. So unfortunately, she really couldn't. Um, and so she, ooh, she stayed on at the Bureau um, and by this time was at, um, supervising a small group of writing staff for the Bureau. And so she stayed. She was a content manager. Basically. I used to be one of those. Um. During this time, mid-1945-ish, um, Rachel first encountered the subject of DDT, which is a big pesticide. It, mm. There's a real name for it. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's real hard. Um, but it was a pesticide. It was actually, like, revolutionary in 1945. That's, like, when it first came out. It was um, lauded as the quote-unquote insect bomb um, after the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, because you know people just like to reference that terrible, Isn't terrible shit. Isn't it fun shit. how that caught on? How everyone's like, "Yeah, we're gonna call everything a bomb." The bomb. <laughs> yeah. I almost said a really bad joke that I'll tell you after, but I'm not gonna say it on the <laughs> podcast. Um, oh no! Did I ever tell you? So my friend's younger sister, who um, my friend is the oldest of like four, and this is the youngest, so mm-hmm. she's quite a bit younger mm-hmm. than me. Um, she was talking to us, this was years ago, and she's like, yeah, I bombed a test. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. Like, did she mean it as a good thing? She did. No, it's a bad thing. But here's the thing. Her way. So so when I was growing up, if you bomb something, it's bad. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, I bombed a test. I fucking failed. But for her, it's like, oh, because like, c- think of it like if you're the bomb, it's positive. That's what my joke has to do with. But we'll- <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it, it almost makes more sense because if you are bombing someone, you it's have bad. the it's, upper. No, I don't care. Well, it's it's bad. a bad thing to do, but you have the upper hand. You're not the person getting bombed. Yeah, I guess. So like if if the test bombed you. I don't know. Anyways. My brain hurts. But. This was when DDT was, so she first encountered it because this was when it was starting to undergo tests for safety and ecological effects. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll come back to DDT years in the future. Okay. This is when she first encountered it. So that was 1945, 1948. She was starting to work on material for a second book. She made the, the, she made the decision to become a full-time writer. She was like, nah. I'm done with this fish bureau bullshit. Actually, <laughs> by the, by this by this time, it was the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, but still. Okay. Um, so she um, found a literary agent named Marie D- Rodell, which I love that she found a woman yeah, to be her agent. There's a lot of powerful um, women popping up, and she'll come up in the story quite often because they formed a close professional and probably personal relationship. Like I feel like your editor slash your publisher becomes someone you're 
you know, you're very closely linked with. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. You okay? I got makeup in my eye. And you, you can keep talking, but everyone on Patreon is going to watch me poke my eye for like 10 minutes. That's funny. Uh, this is why I never wear makeup. It's yep. a problem. Um, so she was st- in 1949, she was still transitioning to writing full time. Um, she was the editor in chief of publications at the Fish Fish Bureau. That's what I'm going to call it. Um, and though her position provided increased opportunities for fieldwork and freedom, it also entailed a lot of tedious administrative responsibilities and handling of other people. Bureaucracy is a bitch. Um, in 1950, obviously with the help of Marie, she finished her uh, manuscript for um, a book called The Sea Around Us, which I think sounds really lovely. Yeah. Um, different chapters of it appeared in both Science Digest and the Yale Review, um, just to kind of like put it out there you know um also nine chapters of it became a serialized review in the new yorker which began in june of 1951 um and then like was released each i don't know how week i don't know how often is the new yorker released month i want to say they're weekly that's what i want to say too because it so nine chapters were serialized beginning in june and then the book was published in july so i would assume you know it got published on maybe the ninth i don't know but it was published, and it remained a New York Times bestseller for 86 weeks. I thought you were going to say years for a second. Know, I'm going to be great. like, when did Harry Potter pop up? Because I know Harry Potter no. would have won. 86 weeks. That's it, insane, though. It was abridged by Reader's Digest. It won the 1952 National Book Award and the John Burroughs Medal and resulted in Rachel being awarded two honorary doctorates. Okay, I was trying to do math to see how many months 86 weeks are, and now everyone on Patreon knows how I count on my fingers, and oh, like, that, like that dead look, that dead fish-eyed look I get when I'm trying math, it's a fuck ton of time. You guys missed That's me what uh, I trying say. to count in Spanish <laughs> in my head last week, but apparently I was mouthing it. She was like... And she, yeah. <laughs> everyone will remember that moment. Yes. Yeah. What uh, was 15 again? Quince? So, yeah, quince. Um, which we should know because it's quinceanera and we've mentioned that multiple oh, times shit. on our podcast. Anyways, so during after she wrote this book, she also licensed it to be a documentary. Um, what what was great about this is the sex the success the the sex s yeah the success of this book led to a republication of Under the Sea Wind, which was the first book she published. I keep yes, saying I talk with my hands a lot. I keep thinking you're going to say Under the Sea Witch and is no. fucking me no, up. No, it's Under the Sea Wind. Okay. Um, um, so that got republished, you know, the one that didn't sell well when it was first published. Um, and it became a bestseller in its own right, actually, after they republished it. Um, and with both of these becoming bestsellers, um, she finally gained that financial security and left the Bureau Three years after she decided, hey, I want to leave the, like, or, well, let's see. She originally wanted to leave in 1945. She began the transition in 1948, and she finally actually left in 1952. Farewell, fish. Exactly. Bye-bye, Bureau. Um, After her books became bestsellers, she was absolutely swamped with people wanting to her, her to come and speak. That's amazing. She also received a ton of fan mail and other correspondence um, from different people. 
Yeah, I would love fan mail. <laughs> if you want to write me fan mail, let me know. I'll give you an address. Not my address. <laughs> an address. So we're we're going to open up box. the phone book. We're going to point to some <laughs> rando yep. and you're going to send them mail. That would actually be like, <laughs> as long as it's nice mail, I would be okay with that. Anyways, um, so like I mentioned, she she had um, licensed a documentary film for this um, book, for this book. Um, and so she secured the right to actually be able to review it, which is great. So she reviewed it and was not happy with it at all. She was like, nah. With the documentary? Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, with the documentary, with the script. Um, she found it... Well, and Irwin Allen, which I'm sure is a famous, like, director, he's who directed it. And he, she wasn't happy with him either because she found it really untrue to how she had wrote the book and scientifically embarrassing. That is what the New York oh, Times called no. it. She described it as, quote, a cross between a believe it or not and a breezy travelogue. I Okay, so you know how, like, in Hollywood, I'm saying this as if anyone actually knows as if I actually know. But you know where it's like you have this idea, you have a script, you have something, and they're like, we love it, wouldn't change a thing, except I get that it's 20,000 leagues under the sea, but what if it was 20,000 leagues in the desert? And like a bunch of executives are like, Let's brilliant, everything. fucking brilliant, right. love it. Okay. 20,000 sea leagues under the moon. <laughs> God, how far would that be? I don't know. Don't ask me. Um, I, I asked and I regret it. So she was mad. She was pissed. I'd be pissed However, too. she discovered that her right to review the script did not extend to any control over its content. So they're like, yeah, you can review it, but it doesn't mean shit. Well, they were hoping she would like it exactly. and then everyone would be like, well, the author loves it. However, or so, not however, this led to many scientific inconsistencies inside the film. It would go on to be produced in spite of Rachel's objections to fix the problems before it was produced. Like, she wasn't like, hey, don't film this. She was like, hey, can you just fix these scientific inconsistencies? And then, no. The guy was like, nah. But it, it was actually very successful. It actually won the 1953 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Okay, you know what sucks about that, though? It spreads misinformation. Exactly. It's, it's like, <sighs> there's that, there's, um... Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but there was a Disney nature documentary from like the 50s or 60s. It's like either Into the Wild or Into the White Wilderness or White okay. Wilderness or something. I'll trust you. But you know that myth about lemmings? Like they they all like go throw themselves oh, off cliffs. Oh, this is the sad. No, Disney like chased them off the cliff. They were. Okay, so they went lemmings to find the lemmings. Lemmings don't do that. They went to find the lemmings because they had heard that lemmings will just like commit okay, mass suicide so, okay, so, so, so well, when the lemmings didn't do that supposedly lemmings what disney said was that their migratory instinct was so strong yeah that they'll jump off cliffs and try and swim in the ocean and drown as a result yeah so when that when they found the lemmings and that isn't true and the lemmings didn't all kill themselves they start chasing the lemmings yeah, off the cliff and they even pick oh up God. these little like baby like baby lemmings rodents, and like and throw they're throw the, oh my, them. and lemmings are fucking adorable they're so cute so like all those games about like lemmings killing themselves and stuff is bullshit that Disney created by throwing lemmings off cliffs fuck you Disney like, you, some things you've done okay, but fuck you and your lemming throwing. I love Moana, but the lemmings were fucked up. 
Okay. Yeah. Fucked up. Anyways. So how would we start this? How would we get here? <laughs> uh, because she was really mad about her scientific uh, inconsistency. Anyways. So she was so mad with that experience that she's like, no, I will never let one of my books become film ever again. Totally fair. Exactly. I'd be pissed. Like you're not, it's like, man, you can make a bad movie, but as long as the science is right, at least right. you got that right. But you didn't even so get that. So during all of this bullshit, Rachel met Dorothy Freeman um, for the first time in the summer of 1953 in Southport Island, Maine. Um, Dorothy had written to Rachel, welcoming her to the area because she had like bought a home in the area. Um, so she, she welcomed, you know, she's like, oh, you're a famous author. Like, I'm so glad we're going to be neighbors. Yay. And they got married and had three adopted children. Uh, I don't know. No, actually, I do know. No. <laughs> I'm like, um, really? <laughs> it was the beginning of an extremely close friendship that would let... It was the beginning of an extremely close friendship that would last the rest of Rachel's life. Um, their relationship was conducted mainly through through letters um, and during summers that they spent together in Maine. Because that was really the only time Rachel was in Maine because she had a lot of speaking engagements. Yeah. Over the course of the 12 years that they were friends, they would exchange somewhere in the region of 900 letters. I would like to think that if we lived in separate cities, this would be us. I mean, um, we definitely have exchanged about 900 texts. Yeah. Easily. Easily. Um, many of these these uh, letters were later published uh, in a book called Always Rachel, which I really kind of want to read. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, it, was, it was published in 1995. Anyways, um, Rachel's biographer, Linda J. Lear, which I love, again, that her biographer is a woman, too. Yeah, that's a great um, name, too. Says, quote, Carson solely sorely needed a devoted friend and kindred spirit who would listen to her without advising and accept her wholly the writer as well as the woman end quote yeah i already finished mine don't worry <laughs> um and she found this in in um in dorothy so she she needed that friend and she found it in dorothy That's sweet um the two women had a lot in common. Like they both loved nature and they both loved writing. And obviously if they were exchanging letters um, and they would share the remainder of the summers of Rachel's life and meet whenever their schedules could afford it. Um, in regard to the extent of their relationship, which I'm sure you're wondering. And I know I wondered as I was reading this, um, as I have already guessed, <laughs> he, well, people weren't really sure because Dorothy was married I mean, um, nothing. And it, so commentators have said, quote, the expression of their love was limited almost wholly to letters and very occasionally farewell kisses and holding of hands. Dorothy would actually share parts of Rachel's letters to her husband to kind of help him understand their relationship. You know, like it's kind of like me telling Justin, hey, you're marrying me and you kind of get Emily because that's just how me. And I, Emily I was are. I was going to say, because you're talking about the holding hands and goodbye kisses, I'm like. I mean, yeah, like we do that right? stuff. And actually, Jared, I so Kelly and I had like a little uh, outing last night. And that's where I got this bitch in fucking dress. I got a different dress. Maybe I'll she post looks a like Anastasia in Paris walking down the stairs. Oh, and when Dimitri's like humming a humming a humming a boner. <laughs> <laughs> that was Emily, but lady boner. Yes, I had a such a wide on. But like um a wide on. I've never heard that <laughs> it was it's a reference from American Dad, and oh, so Jared and I use it. I love you. <laughs> but I was talking with Jared. I was like, we were texting back and forth after and having fun. And like I was like, oh, and Kelly said this really funny thing, and Jared's like are you going to leave me for Kelly? And I was like, only emotionally. He goes, that's worse. 
I was, he's like, no, seriously, it was are you, told, are you going to become Kelly's lover? I'm like, you know what? We're already lovers, I, I bet Kelly would be a very forgiving lover would be. because I would be very, gentle. I can't even figure out my own body, let alone another woman. Like, so I'm very intimidated mm-hmm. by the idea, but I feel like you would be very yeah, like, I feel accepting. like we would be very well. I feel like we have the emotional connection we're, to we're, make it we're work. We're a Boston marriage. Anyways. Okay. This is how we're leaving our, our partners. Right. They're just gonna wa- they're gonna watch this video and be like, "Oh, bye. honestly, Anyways. if they're surprised, they haven't been paying no. attention." No, I'm not even joking. When I married Justin, it was I don't remember if I brought it up or you brought it up. You someone, brought it up. Someone brought it up that it was like, "Okay, yeah, you're marrying me, but you're also realizing that you're marrying someone that basically has a wife already." Yeah, I'm like a I'm like a weird in law. Yeah, yeah. You're my sub wife. It's fine. I yeah, I'm you. her. I'm her Boston wife. Yeah, exactly. I'm fine with that. I'll just. I should put you in my will and to my Boston wife. <laughs> to my Boston wife, Emily. I leave everything, and as yeah. long as she just makes it rain over Justin exactly. for five minutes. Anyways, um, <laughs> so like I said, um, Dorothy would share parts of Rachel's letters to her husband to kind of understand it, but much of their letters were very closely guarded. You know, it was what the 1950s like yeah you know um some believe that dorothy and rachel were a romantic relationship and actually if you like wikipedia them dorothy is listed as rachel's like significant other or not significant other but like partner well and it's hard because there's been so much erasure of same-sex relationships throughout history especially if dorothy was married like it yeah. complicates things. It would have been very covert, especially. But, you know, it. so we, we right. don't want to uh, erase the potential that they were romantically involved. But at the same time, we, we don't also want to acknowledge, sure. you know, like. Exactly. There, here are some quotes from their letters, though. But I'm like, yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, but I, I could see also, like I said, I could see myself writing some of these, not all of these to you. So Rachel wrote to Dorothy, but oh, my darling, I want to be with you so terribly that it hurts. While in another one, Dorothy wrote to Rachel, I love you beyond expression. My love is as boundless as the sea. That that one I could write to you and 100% be true. I will say, though, there would be zero question if it was a man and a woman. Exactly. Um, but because they're two women, well, we're like, we don't we know. We don't know. So it's um, like. Well, it's because, like I, like I said, I could write that to you and we're not in a. I get. I don't know. We're in like a semi-romantic relationship. We have a but really deep emotional exactly. connection, um, and that's, maybe that's what they had. Um, what is really cute, I think, is Rachel's last letter to Dorothy before her death, which we're not even close to. But this was just in this <laughs> what section. What page are we on out of the eighty? <laughs> uh, like two? No, I'm kidding. Oh um, my god! I need so to shut the fuck up. Rachel's last letter said, "Quote: Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years." Oh, they were so in love. They were. Shut up. They were so in love. So in 1953, now we're just going to become away from that relationship, but it's so cute. It comes back later. Um, In early 1953, uh, Rachel began uh, library and field research on the ecological and organisms of the Atlantic shore. So before she was like in Chesapeake Bay, now she's on the Atlantic shore. Um, and in 1955, she completed her third volume in her sea trilogy, which I love. Sea trilogy. This one was called The Edge of the Sea. Um, this one focuses on coastal ecosystems, particularly on the eastern seaboard. It again appeared in The New Yorker in some installments before the book was released. She re- What's interesting to note is each of these three books, even though it was a trilogy, each one was published by a different publishing house. And yes, I hit my mic again. 
by this time, uh, her reputation was well established. She had two bestsellers. And so this one became, um, again, highly reviewed. I don't know if it didn't say it became a bestseller, but it did sell quite well, just not as well as the sea around us. Um, in 1957, family tragedy struck yet again. Because these things come in threes. Right. When uh, one of the nieces that she had cared for since the 1940s died at the age of 31, leaving a five-year-old son. Jesus Christ. Rachel took on the responsibility of Roger. That was the, that was his the name. Son. And adopted him. Oh. Yep. So she had Roger and her mother. Because her sister's other kid was now old, you know, obviously yeah, old enough. Yeah, But still, um, at this time, she moved her and her family to Silver Spring, Maryland to care for Roger because that's where uh, her niece had been living. And much of that year was spent putting together a new living situation, you know, figuring out where he was, like what to do with her mom, like and all like kind of coordinating all of that. That's a huge transition with a lot of moving parts. Exactly. However, by late 1957, kind of when stuff had started to settle down, she started closely following federal proposals of widespread pesticide spraying. Remember that DDT we mentioned? Oh. Coming back. So during this time, the United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA, planned to eradicate fire ants and other pests, you know, um, using chlorinated hydrocarbons and organic phosphates. So pesticides. Okay. Um... And this actually became Rachel's, like, main professional focus for the rest of her life was use of pesticides. So, first they started with fire ants, and then they started on the this program called the Gypsy Moth Eradication Program. Which is sad, because gypsy moths are actually really pretty, but I'm sure they caught, if in, like, large numbers, they probably cause devastating effects. Like, yeah. like most animals, like, if you get a swarm of locusts, you're kind of fucked. You're Googling what they look like, aren't you? Oh, they're like little yeah. white fuzzy yeah. ghosts. They're cute. Um, but Kelly's, like I Kelly's said. Kelly's going to throw up a picture of a gypsy moth right here. Yeah. Right, right there. Right in the middle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will, actually. I know how to do that. Um, I know, and that's why you do the video, because you're amazing. So, so this gypsy moth eradication program involved aerial spraying of DDT, and other pesticides mixed with fuel oil, which just sounds terrible. Sounds super great um, which for Which actually not only included, um, like, federal lands, they actually were spraying private lands as well. Oh. Um, and landowners, particularly on Long Island, were not happy about that and filed a lawsuit to have the spraying stopped. Um, though the suit was lost, the Supreme Court did grant them the right to gain injunctions if anything in the future happened that they, you know, that... They were like, oh, yeah, this was directly caused by the DDT, which is good because shit happened. Later. Like if all those people got cancer, they could be like, you gave me cancer. Exactly. Um, there was something called the, oh, God, uh, Audubon Naturalist Society, which also actively opposed these spraying programs and kind of recruited Rachel to help make um, the government's spraying practices like widely known. So they were basically like, hey, can you write some literature for us? Because you're an amazing writer and you're in you're educated right. in environmental and issues. And she actually did begin writing um, what would become a four year project on a book called Silent Spring. Mm. Which is like that's like her main. That sounds thing. kind of familiar, actually. Yep. Like in the 
very borders of my brain. So she began this, this project and she actually um, originally began this project with the plans to co-write it with someone named Edwin Diamond, who was a journalist. Um, however, the New Yorker commissioned a well-paid article from her um, from Rachel, and she began considering writing, because she was originally going to write just the introduction and conclusion, and she was like, you know what? No. I can write more than that. So she just uh, just struck out on her own, and actually later, Edwin would become one of the harshest critics of her book, probably because she was like, I can do this on my own. Fuck you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. As she re- began researching um, pesticides, she found a really sizable community of scientists who were documenting the physiological and environmental effects that these pesticides were having. She also took advantage of her personal connections with many of the government scientists because, you know, she was with that fish bureau forever, um, who supplied her with a lot of confidential information. <laughs> you know, that's this what you need. Everyone needs from me, but this shit is fucked. Exactly. <laughs> Here's the memo that says this shit is fucked. So from reading scientific literature and interviewing these scientists she knew, she found two camps when it came to pesticides. Those who dismissed the danger of possibility altogether just saying like hey there's no conclusive proof whatever go ahead and spray and those who were like yeah we don't know if it's doing harm but we're open to the possibility that it is and maybe we should use alternate methods so yay i love there's no one that's like yeah no this is bad (laughs) right so two um major long island new yorkers named marjorie spock and mary t richards um that were big people that were contesting the aerial spraying of DDT on Long Island, which we mentioned already, they compiled a bunch of their evidence and shared it with Rachel um, to be like, hey, this is what's going on. She wrote of the content as, quote, a goldmine of information and said, I feel guilty about the mass of your material I have here. She does go on to make multiple references to them and to other um, scientists that she was, you know, getting information from. Right. Um, in 1959, the USDA's um, research service responded to criticism by Rachel um, with a public service film called Fire Ant on Trial. Fire Ant on because Trial. Because one of the things they were spraying besides Gypsy fire Moss ants. were fire ants. Yeah. Um, Rachel characterized it as, quote, flagrant propaganda. Um, and it widely ignored the dangers of spraying pesticides on humans and wildlife and kind of just focused on, like, hey, what, fire ants are a problem. We should get rid of them. You Have know? you ever been bitten by one of those fuckers? It hurts. Kill them. Now. Whatever means necessary. Exactly. We need you. To kill fucking fire ants. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that spring, af- after they released that, Rachel wrote a letter that was published in the Washington Post that attributed recent decline in bird populations and her, in her words, quote unquote, silencing of the birds to pesticide overuse. Yeah, you wonder where the name of the book came from. Um, that was also the year of what is known as the Great Cranberry Scandal. The Great Cranberry yep. Scandal. Yep. Yep. Was so that when everyone found out that they don't grow on trees and they actually grow in bogs? And everyone was like, what? yeah, if you didn't know that I've been to one before, it's really interesting. But yeah, like it basically looks like a, a like a rice paddy. Yeah. But it's cranberries. It's real it's, weird. I want to go swimming and just like with my mouth open, just like fucking Pac-Man. Like, 
I mean, they have. That's where Pac-Man came from. Anyways, um, so apparently the the crops of cranberries in 1957, 1958, and 1959 were found to contain high levels of herbicide ammonia triazole, which can cause cancer, or which did cause cancer in laboratory rats. They knew that, and so. The sale of cranberry products was absolutely halted because they were like, oh, shit, we can't have this chemical. So, yeah, that Killer was the cranberry. That was the great cranberry scandal. Oh, my God. Um, that was a really shitty three years of Thanksgiving. Yeah, right? Like, I want cranberry sauce. Do Too you bad. want cancer? <laughs> you mean cancer sauce? Yeah, exactly. No. Um, so during this time, Rachel was attending um, FDA hearings that were happening because of what was going on with cranberries to deal with pesticide regulations. She came away actually quite discouraged because the chemical industry people were super aggressive. I mean, if you listen to any politics now, you kind of know how they are. Um, But basically, like, they had expert testimony that was, like, contradicting the bulk of scientific literature that Rachel had been reading. So she, like, came away from it and was like, well, I bet these guys are being paid. Which is great. So it's probably true. All I'm thinking of. So Kelly and I have been reading the book, uh, The Radium Girls. I believe it's by Kate Moore. Hold on, let me check because I know it's on there. I can't see the. I can't either. Hold on. <laughs> oh, please don't let everything else fall over. No, you should be good. Yeah, Kate Moore. Okay, Radium gonna, Girls to think by like, Kate Moore. That's coming later. Everyone should read this. Spoilers. This shit's coming up. But it really reminds me of how the the companies that were using radium that were killing people hired people who claimed to be doctors and then were proven not to be doctors. Yeah, they weren't even doctors. It was bullshit. And then everyone's just like, who the fuck cares if they're actually a doctor? Right, it was like, bad. but kind of that like, and and they're altering scientific publications and they're straight it's, up it lying. Was, it was real bad. Oh, I'm gonna set that right there. With the with the binding out, so everyone, so everyone can everyone remember can to read it. Yeah, yeah, just a little reminder um, of how fucked the world is. Super. So eventually, as the Library of Medicine and of the National Institutes of Health began researching, they actually brought Rachel in, or sh- sorry, as she was researching at the Library of Medicine of Na- of the National Institute of Health, um, that brought her into contact with a bunch of medical researchers that were also studying like cancer causing materials. And actually, there was significant work at the National Cancer Institute um, done by the founding director, Wilhelm Wilhelm Huber, Woo. that was classifying a lot of these pesticides that they were spraying as carcinogens, which we know, like, today, that's fairly common knowledge. Yeah. Um, Rachel and her research assistant, Jeanne Davis, which I love, all these women, she's just fucking surrounding herself with all these empowered women, and I love it. I love um, it so much. With the help of yet another woman, NHI librarian Dorothy Algier, um, they found evidence to support this whole pesticide cancer connection. Duh. I mean, like today, it's common knowledge. To Rachel, the evidence for the toxicity of a lot of these pesticides was super clear. Like she read it and she was like, yeah. Though a lot of these conclusions were viewed as controversial beyond small community scientists that were studying the, the pesticides like on their own. You know, so like in the wider scientific community, they were kind of like, and, you know, they didn't really believe her. By 1960, Rachel had way, way more than enough research material and um, her writing began progressing 
rapidly. Like she was like, okay, I'm getting this book done, you know? Be, um, she also would go out during this writing time. She would go out and investigate hundreds of incidents of pesticide exposure. So she, like she was going out into the field and like talking to people that were saying that, hey, these things are causing problems. I was going to say, it, so you you said that the wider scientific community is still like, we don't know. I'm like, isn't it your job to fucking figure it exactly. out? Why is she the one that's going out and being like, hey, let me actually like do the research and exactly. figure it out. I, and everyone else is like, well, we don't fucking know. We're the greater scientific community. Well, we don't Who care. the fuck knows? Exactly. But so she went out and talked to people that had like human sickness and different ecological damage that like had resulted from pesticide spraying. However, in January, she found a duodenal ulcer. So that's like your lower um, intestine. Ooh. So she found an ulcer followed by several infections that would keep her bedridden for weeks. So she was getting real sick. Was it from the pesticide or was it just <laughs> the stress of telling everyone, hey, uh, the shit's killing people? And everyone's um, like. So obviously this delayed her book quite a bit because she was bedridden. She couldn't do yeah. anything. Um. She began nearing a full recovery, at which point she was completing drafts of two two chapters on the can- on cancer and pesticides, which is interesting. She discovered cysts in her left breast, one which of ne- one which necessitated a me- mastectomy. Um, which after the mastectomy, her doctor just um said that the procedure was just precautionary and recommended no further treatment. Uh, uh, by December <laughs> of that same year, she found out the tumor was malignant and the cancer had metastasized. No. So fuck that doctor. No. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, I guess, by this time, um, most of the writing had actually been done, except for a discussion of a few like recent biological pest controls that had come out and uh, an investigation of new pesticides. Um, however, obviously, because of the metastasized cancer and further health troubles, the, revi- the final revisions that were happening in 1961 and into 1962 were really, really slow. During this time, um, Rachel tried really, really hard to hide her illness so that the chemical companies couldn't use it against her. Yeah. She didn't want them to know because she was afraid that they would use that as ammunition to make her look untrustworthy and her book to look biased. Which is sad. That is heartbreaking to be like, I have cancer. It's not like she's blaming the pesticides either. It's just like, hey, by the way, I'm researching how dangerous this is. And and I I happen to have cancer. cancer." Like, I mean, that's truly sinister. But they can be like, well, I mean, she's already a hysterical woman. And now she's delusional because she has cancer. Like, fucking A. That hysterical woman comes into play later and it's great. Shut the fuck up. No, it's great, though. Okay. Okay. We'll see. I'm going to save my STFUs yes, for a moment. Because it's great. Um, Put them away. It was difficult finding a title for the book. I know I mentioned earlier that it becomes called title, Silent Spring, but originally that was just going to be the title for the chapter on birds. Remember, she talks about birds going silent. Yep. Um. So her and Marie, her you know, her agent, went back and forth, you know, being like, eh, what should the book be called? And they eventually agreed on Silent Spring as it was a metaphorical title for the entire book, suggesting a bleak future for the whole natural world rather than a literal chapter about birds. Well, and especially because, you know, in, in literature, spring is bringing of new life. It's rejuvenation. Exactly. And so and the idea that that is not happening is really devastating. Exactly. So, um... 
Rachel also approved illustrations to be written by Lewis and Lois Darling. So I was like, I love that. Oh my God. Um, they definitely married because of their names. 100%. <laughs> um, they also had designed the cover of the book. So they did, they did some illustrations within the book as well. Um, and the final writing of the, the final thing that was written was the first chapter, which is called A Fable for Tomorrow. Wow. Um, which Rachel intended and is, it's a kind of like a gentle introduction into what might be a really hard topic otherwise, basically. You know, she kind of like is like, okay, this is what I'm going to be talking about. It kind of gets deep and is dense and, you know, it's pesticides. Um, by mid-1962, um, they had largely finished the editing and were laying the groundwork for promoting the book and sending the manuscripts to individuals. So what's cool about this is they not only sent it to like literary people to review, they sent it to scientists, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, one of her biographers, Mark Hamilton Light, writes, quote, Rachel was quite self-consciously or Rachel quite self-consciously decided to write a book calling into question the paradigm of scientific progress that defined post-war American culture. Like, so this is a huge thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this idea. We have won World War II with very right. destructive science. And so there's this idea, like, science can do anything. I mean, you see it in superhero comics where it's like radiation gives you superpowers. And we know it super doesn't. Uh, but to be like, yeah, by the way, this science can hurt us like we need to wield this power very right. carefully i apparently need to talk faster because we're an hour in and i'm only halfway through my story oh no okay okay speed read go <laughs> so her main argument was that pesticides have a detrimental effect on the environment and that they should be more pro pro properly termed biocides okay um, and most of the book is devoted to pesticides and their effects on the natural ecosystem. There are, however, four chapters that detail cases of human pesticide poisoning, cancer, and other illnesses. However, she didn't actually talk a whole lot about DDT and cancer, which is like the main debate that comes out of her book. Okay? So remember that. Um, she did predict an increased consequence in the future, especially targeting pests developing pesticide resistance so she like brought that up she's like guys if we keep spraying them like hardcore they're just going to develop a resistance to yeah. it um and the, she actually calls for uh, a biotic approach to pest control so like hey release like owls that will eat the moths or you know something like that so in regards to the pesticide ddt she never actually calls for an outright ban she just says hey like let's use like less of it um, let's be responsible exactly um, she actually said, this is a long quote, but I'm going to leave it in. No responsible person contends that insect-borne disease should be ignored. The question that has now urgently presented itself is whether it is wise or responsible to attack the problem by methods that are rapidly making it worse. So she's comparing insect-borne diseases and pesticides. Mm -hmm. uh, the world has heard much of the triumphant war against disease through the control of insect vectors of infection, but it has heard little of the other side of the story, the defeats, the short-lived triumphs that now strongly support the alarming view that the insect enemy has been made stronger by our efforts. Even worse, we may have destroyed our, air our very own means of fighting. Yay. Um... So obviously, once the book was published, she faced fierce criticism. And one of the things they were actually worried about when they published was like being sued for libel, mm. which luckily that never um, 
came to be. However, during this time, like, so as she was facing this fierce criticism, she was also undergoing radiation therapy to combat her own spreading cancer and unfortunately had very little energy to devote to defending her work and responding to critics. She's like, I'm fighting for my fucking life over yeah. here, basically. Um, so what her and her publisher did was um, amass a bunch of prominent supporters before the book released. They were like, Smart. we're going to gather all these scientists and all these people that back Smart. us. Um, and like I said, they they had the chapters and the book reviewed by scient- scientists. So they had that backing, which is great. So when the book was released, it generated a fi- fairly high level of interest um, even before it was released. And it became even more um, wanted when The New Yorker published a serialized version of it. So like each of her books has been published by The New Yorker, which I think is great. Um However, this serialization also brought the book to the attention of the chemical industry and the lobbyists within the government, um, as well as the American populace. Um, She also learned that during this time, her book was selected to be Book of the Month, which, as she put it, quote, would carry the book to farms and hamlets all over the country that don't know what a bookstore looks like, much less the New York Times. Oh, wow. So, like, this is bringing the book everywhere i don't know what the book of the month is i i was gonna say was that like a national program where like certain books been. were chosen to be distributed far and wide because i'm thinking been, like I don't the know. oprah book club right like. but yeah so she was really excited about that um but what was nice is when this happened that she received a lot of positive editorials both in the new york times and other magazines and uh, when that happened, of course, the chemical co- uh, chemical companies responded um, unfavorably. However, the story of thalidomide, that birth defect causing drug, broke just before her book was released. Francis fucking yeah. Per- no, not Francis Perkins. Nope. Uh, Francis, Francis Kelsey. Kelsey. Yeah, Doctor Francis and Kelsey. So- there was a lot of comparison between Rachel and Francis um, as this book was being released because, yeah, yeah, exactly. They were really excited. So, obviously, when the book was published, DuPont, who is a huge chemical manufacturer, even today. They're the ones uh, that, shit, what's her name, who... Did the bulletproof vests was working oh, for yeah, you I covered can't, her I can't think of what her name is right she now, was Polish yeah. damn it but she was cool but yeah so like they do good things too but yeah. they're also they, at least at this time were a major chemical manufacturer and they would go on to compile an extensive report on the book's press coverage to estimate like public impact and they were you know very much like uh guys you know they they very much were like tr- trying to like make her look bad yeah you know um, another major chemical corporation called Velsicol, which I don't know that one, uh, did threaten legal action against her publisher as well as The New Yorker and other magazines that were publishing. Nothing ever came of it, though, and a lot of them also published nonspecific complaints against her, you know, just because why not? Well, here's here's the thing. To threaten to sue someone is really intimidating, oh, yeah. but then if you actually sue them... You have to bring your case to the table, exactly. and she's right. And that's the thing: her her publishers, her and like all their lawyers were super confident because, like I said, they had sent the book out 
two scientists, all of their like research was from scientists. So they were super confident. They were like, yeah, if you want to sue us, you can try. Bring it on, bitches. Right. I dare you. Come at me, bro. Um, so there were some chemists, uh, Robert White Stevens and Thomas Jukes, um, particularly were among her harshest critics, along with the, the guy that she was supposed to write the book with. Um, White. I think my Google just talked. I think our pizza's here. I, I was going to say our pizza's here um, and the dogs are freaking out and the Google's freaking out because everyone's excited for pizza. Yeah, pizza. I'm going to talk a little faster. No. Okay. Right. According to Robert, he said, quote, if man were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson, we would return to the dark ages and the insects and diseases and vermin would once again inherit the earth. Shut the fuck up, dude. Fuck you, Robert. That's like, there was a tweet that was like, if we needed masks, we would have evolved them by now. Do you wear shoes, right. sir? Exactly. <laughs> Do you wear clothes? Um, they actually also went as far as attacking her scientific credentials because technically she was trained as a marine biologist rather than a biochemist. Um, and they actually would go on to like call her an hysterical woman. That Don't, don't, don't say anything yet. Um Someone actually went as far to, as to write to the president saying that she was probably a communist, which I think is really funny. Um, however, the, the academic at this point, the academic community at this point actually was backing her and public opinion very quickly turned in Rachel's favor. Um, the chemical industries campaign backfired greatly on them. And it's 100 percent great. And this is where the hysterical woman comes in. Okay. Or I'm ready. Hysterical comes in. I need this. So uh, one of the major like chemical companies launched a CBS TV special on the silent spring of Rachel Carson that aired in 1963. The program included segments of Rachel reading from silent spring and interviews with a number of other experts, um, which were mostly critics, including Robert, who was that asshole from before. And according to her biographer, quote, in juxtaposition to the wild eyed, loud voiced Dr. Robert White Stevens in a white lab coat, Rachel appears anything but the hysterical alarmist that her critics intended her to be. God, why does that sound so fucking so basically, familiar? She was calm and collected and presented her argument and he was like freaking the fuck out. So really, it was a hysterical man. I like literally we just saw this on TV a couple years ago. Right. Guys, within a year or so of the book's publication, the attacks on the book and on Rachel herself kind of lost momentum and died down. Um, in one of her last public appearances, uh, Rachel actually went on to testify before President John F. Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee. Um, and they would actually go on to issue a report largely backing her, which I think is great. Sorry. Um, however, at this point, her health was steadily declining as her cancer outpaced her radiation therapy with only brief pe- periods of remission. Um, she spoke as much as she was physically able to, however, including appearances on the Today Show, several dinners held in her honor. Um, and she would actually, in late 1963, s- receive several awards, most of which she was able to attend um, the uh, presentation of. She won the Audubon Medal, uh, the Columban Geographical Medal, which is from the Geographical Society, and was inducted into the Ameri- uh, American Academy of Arts and Letters, which is great. In a television interview, Carson or er, Rachel once stated, "Quote, and I love this quote: 
Man's endeavors to control nature by his powers to alter and to destroy would inevitably evolve into a war against himself, a war he would lose unless he came to term with nature. I mean, mic drop, right? I, th- I th- that's it. That's exactly it. Exactly. You know, like I, I, I understand wanting to control nature. You know, you want to prevent the wildfire, the flood, the you know, the devastating storm, you the insect swarms. But the with thing all the is, of the wind. God damn it! <laughs> but you know, like if we, because we live in nature, it's, it's a part of us. You know, you can't just be like, just scatter shot destroy it all no it doesn't work that way we rely on it exactly. the balance unfortunately weakened by breast cancer and the treatments she was under undergoing rachel became ill with a respiratory virus in january of 1964 her condition steadily worsened and in february doctors found that she had a severe anemia because of her radiation treatments in march they discovered that the cancer had reached her liver and she died of a heart attack on april 14th 1964 in her home in maryland that's so sad because remember- it sounds like it was a very long illness yeah. and she wasn't able to just like take care of herself Ooh. she was having to go and defend her book against a bunch of assholes so remember dorothy her person her very special her. person <laughs> Um, shortly before her death, uh, Dorothy and Rachel destroyed hundreds of the letters that they had wrote to each other. Oh. Um, and as I said, the surviving correspondence was later published in a book called Always Rachel, the letters of Rachel Carson and Dorothy Freeman, which I really, really want to read, um, uh, which was actually edited by Dorothy's granddaughter, which I think is really cute. Um, and she wrote, quote, a few comments in early letters indicate that Rachel and Dorothy were initially cautious about the romantic tone and terminology of their correspondence. I believe this caution prompted their destruction destruction of some letters within the first two years of their friendship. They um, were definitely in love. I'm just going to say it. According to, I really like this, though. According to one reviewer, this is what it says. Quote, the pair fit Carolyn Heilburn's characterization of a strong female friendship where what matters is not whether friends are homosexual or heterosexual, lovers or not, but whether they share the wonderful energy of work in the public sphere. I really like that. That is very sweet. Um, so after she died, this, this is really unfortunate. There was a disagreement about the funeral arrangements for Rachel. Her brother, Robert, insisted that her cremated remains be buried alongside their mother in Maryland, which was against Rachel's own wishes to be buried in Maine. In the end, a compromise was reached and Rachel's wishes were carried out. She, um, So it was, it was carried out by her agent, Marie, her editor, Paul, and Dorothy. So basically what happened is that Robert got half of the ashes and they were, they were buried next to the mother. And Dorothy got the other half of the ashes and they were able to be spread out in Maine as she wanted. Okay. Yeah, um, it's weird. I don't feel great about that, but it could have been worse. Exactly. I, guess. I like, so, make sure you guys have a will. Seriously, just like lay this out in great 100%. detail. Uh, so legacy. I'll be quick about this one. Uh, I'll skip some of the ones I had included that don't matter as much. Um, so Rachel did bequeath her manuscripts and papers. I just wanted to use the word bequeath to Yale University, um, who had at the time state of the art uh, preservation techniques. So, um, and Marie, her agent and friend, um, spent two years organizing and cataloging all those papers before they went to Yale. And what was cool is she actually spent, sent a lot of like the papers and correspondence 
to like the people that had sent them to Rachel to be like, hey, are you okay with these being published? Which I think is amazing. Yeah, Consent's Um, important. Exactly. So uh, they did go on to publish, like I said, a lot of her letters and um, they published a lot of her unpublished works in a book called Lost Woods. Um, And all of the books that Rachel wrote are still in print. Nice. Obviously, Rachel's work had a great impact on the environmental movement. Silent Spring um, was a huge rallying point to a social movement in the 1960s. Um, And a scholar, uh, Patricia Hines, said, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to to sell pollution as the necessary underside of progress so easily or uncritically. So basically, like, Rachel gave that voice to people to be able to, like, be like, hey, we're not ruled by these chemical companies. Like, we can take a second look. Um, There's also... um, like, obviously, one of her biggest things is the use of DDT in the United States. And even though she didn't call for a direct ban about it, it made people look at it a lot harder. And there was a lot of, like, committees and different stuff formed, particularly against DDT, which I think is interesting. Um, but basically, it it made it so that DDT, they ended up phasing out DDT. Although I think it is still used today, like, in sporadic situations. Yeah. But it was it's much more regulated and actually her work um ended up in the creation of the environmental protection agency or the epa that the nixon administration founded in the 1970s um good to hear you got something right (laughs) what's interesting though is until then the usda was responsible for both regulating pesticides and promoting the concerns of the agriculture industry which is like you can't be this both you sides can't, of the you coin. can't advocate for nature and then also advocate for using chemicals in nature exactly like um uh, and the epa was actually described as quote the extended shadow of silent spring which i think oh, is cute I love she that. also got a lot of posthumous honors a lot of these are the ones i'm gonna skip because i've been talking for like an hour and a half Probably not, honor actually. on you honor on exactly your cow. she basically exactly she basically got a lot of things um one of the greatest ones was she actually was awarded the presidential medal of freedom which is the highest civilian oh, honor wow. you can get in the united states right uh that. she got a american postage stamp yes, for our collectors out there collectors. and there are actually several other countries that also have postage stamps in her name so if you're one of those countries let us know because I didn't, I couldn't find a list. Um, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1973. She has several colleges named after her, as well as high schools. Um, her birthplace, where she wrote uh, "Silent Spring," and uh, like where, like so where she was born, where she grew up, and where she wrote "Silent Spring" are all historic places now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a hiking trail called the Rachel Carson Trail in Pittsburgh. Which and a bridge. Um, there have been two research vessels that have sailed uh, in the United States bearing the name Rachel Carson. Much better than Bodie McBoat Boat. Exactly. Um, there's a number of co- uh, conservation areas named for her, as well as frequent uh, prizes uh, that are, you know, philanthrop- philanthropic, educational, and scholarly. Um, there's also the Rachel, Rachel Car- Carson sculpture in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. That was unveiled in 2013. If you live near Woods Hole, Massachusetts, please go and find the sculpture and take a picture of it. Take for a us. selfie with that and um, then send it to us. There was also a Google Doodle for her 107th birthday on May 27th, 2014. It's really cute. Aww. That's it. 
Man, because I had I had vaguely heard of Silent Spring an in hour relation and to DDT. In. <laughs> okay, well, mine is mine is a lot shorter. Um, there's less like extreme chemical stuff. Uh, I just like there was so much of that. I'm like, I can't, I can't skip this. Well, it, it it's a very dense topic because it's very complicated. It's not just the chemicals; it's the politics, it's the government agencies involved, it's the science. It's, there's a lot. So yeah, like her Google Doodle is really cute because it's like her standing on the edge of like a pond and then there's like all these sea creatures and all these birds and it's just really pretty here wait show me i'll I'll put it up on the screen right there that's so right there right in the middle yeah that's cute i like that it's it's like in muted blues and whites it's very very pretty that's lovely yeah because i've I've heard of silent spring i've heard of the whole ddt thing but i had no idea about the woman like behind it all and what an incredible story and like you know i i keep thinking about ruth bader ginsburg because she's working on the supreme court while fighting Cancer. cancer and this woman is also like trying to tell people like hey maybe we should be more responsible with spraying chemicals all over the place while fighting cancer and they're using it against her like fuck man yeah it's it's terrible it's frustrating that's an incredible story though cheers rachel yeah good grief cheers all right well today i'm going to whine about katherine switzer Ooh. That's an amazing name. Yeah, it is. And I, uh, so she's still alive. So at the top, I always put the the birth and death date, just so I remember. Yeah, you too, don't so worry. I put January fifth, nineteen forty seven to forever, forever, <laughs> forever. Okay. What if you could change the world in twenty six miles? That is exactly what Catherine Switzer did. Catherine's Catherine. I'm going to pause. Did you just like rewind I'm take a moment. That's what it sounded Center like. my brain. Okay. Kath- <laughs> one sentence in, and yep. this is fucked. Okay. Catherine was born on January 5th, 1947 in Amberg, Germany. So her father was a U.S. major in the uh, army, and her family was stationed there. Catherine didn't spend much time in Germany as her family returned to the United States when she was two years old, which has got to be kind of a bummer. Like, oh, you were born in Germany? Tell me stories. I literally don't remember don't anything. Know, yeah. Like, fuck, man. At 12 years old, Catherine took up running, saying it gave Ooh. her, quote, such a sense of accomplishment. And I'm like, I get that. You like, know, yeah, I would die. I hop on. The, I, I used to hate running so much. I, still hate I was a But I, I I've gotten sprint. into it and it's become this like really cleansing experience, especially with my anxiety. Like I'll have these manic moments. I go and run it out on the treadmill and it is like I feel like purified after I used to I used to hate running. I thought people who ran were like clinically insane. insane. Like there's something broken inside of you. But now I'm like, I, I mean, I couldn't imagine running like a I mean, marathon it's, it's or a 5K, a but like anxiety I like doing it for myself, you know. After graduating from high school in Virginia, she went uh, to the University of Lynchburg in Virginia before transferring to Syracuse University, where she studied journalism and English literature. Cheers to the English majors. Yeah. Yeah, We're getting all the English majors. We're all sisters reading a lot of books. Okay. Well, at Syracuse, Catherine unofficially trained with the men's cross country team, which was coached by Arnie Briggs, who had completed 15 Boston marathons. I can't imagine completing one marathon. I would. That dude's real impressive. Like good grief. I probably walk 20. Okay. I walk like 25 to 30 K in a week. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that is in miles, but like that's a whole week. I couldn't do it all at once. 
Um, so because there's no women's cross country team, yeah, she's she just like, hey, I mean, can I just run just with you like, guys? Because um, I love running. Betty Robinson. Yeah, like, exactly. She had to train with the guys. Love Betty. All right. It was unusual for a woman to pursue running, especially long distances. There was this idea that running would make women manly or make their uteruses fall I was out. Wasn't, wasn't the, yeah, I was going to say, one of the things was, yeah, your uterus will fall out if you run too much. I'm like, or, if, or if you ride a bicycle. And, like, honestly, that is my favorite women's sports myth. Like, yeah, that's if we, if, if, if someone can push out... A, baby. a human being from their uterus. Right. Like our our uterus is not gonna fall out running or riding a bike. Like which would you or rather riding do? a horse? Push a child out or like go on a run. Which is more intense on your uterus? Yeah, right. This is why sexism is so fucking stupid because it never made sense. No, it's just like <laughs> What? How? How? How do you possibly think that? Please explain to me how running is going to make also, my uterus like, do spontaneously you, do you fall think out my of my body. Is just like floating around in my body, not attached to anything else. This is what my uterus does, and then it does this when I'm on my period. <laughs> All right. So one day, Catherine was on a six-mile run in the dark in December. In a snowstorm. It's fun. literally everything I hate rolled into one event. So she was running with her coach, Arnie, when they got into an argument. Normally on these runs, Arnie would retell stories from his Boston Marathon days or like his old war stories, you know? And she's probably like, shut up. She literally, almost literally says that. Catherine had heard these tales again and again. And on this night, she snapped at Arnie saying, oh, let's quit talking about the Boston Marathon and run the damn thing. Right. Her. To which Arnie responded... No woman can run the Boston Marathon. I hope she punched him in the face. Catherine pointed out the fact that she was running 10 miles per night. Right. Like, really, dude? It's worth pointing out that a woman named Roberta Bobby Gibb had snuck into the Boston Marathon the previous year and completed it. And I almost covered her, but I need a shorter story. And her hers was a little more intense than this one. I will be covering her in the future, but she does pop up throughout. But just know she snuck into the marathon because they wouldn't let her run. She completed it and she's a badass. Yeah. And a story. 100%. For now. Apparently, this fact was lost on Arnie, though, because he said, no dame ever ran the Boston Marathon. If any woman could do it, you could, but you would have to prove it to me. If you ran the distance in practice, I'd be the first to take you to Boston. And I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about the study where uh, basically the result was in a job interview, men are kind of measured on their potential while women are measured on what they have accomplished. And I'm like, you don't think she has the potential? Like she has to prove it to you that she can do it? He already said she has the potential, but he's like, no, I'm not going to go on potential Until he sees it with his own eyes. Yeah. Arnie does come out better in the story. I'm not going to hate too hard on him, you know, because uh, this actually sounded really good to Catherine. She had a step had step by step instructions to get her to the Boston Marathon. She's like, yeah, OK, right. I just got to run 26 miles in front of this dude and we're good. Go. We're going. Yeah. Catherine got to work training and three weeks before the marathon, she ran the 26 mile trial with Arnie. According to Catherine's memoir, Marathon Woman, she writes, quote, I love this. As we came down our home stretch, it felt too easy. This is after running 26 miles. And she's like, I feel amazing. Let's, like, let's do keep this. Going. 
So I suggested that we run another five mile loop just to feel extra confident about Boston. Arnie agreed reluctantly toward the end of our 30 mile run or 31 mile run, he began turning gray. When we finished, I hugged him ecstatically and he passed out cold. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, Arnie came to my dorm and insisted that I sign up for the race. So he's like, okay, you can do do this. this. He kind of kicked my ass. Let's not tell people (laughs) until you write about it in your memoir and everyone knows. Catherine entered the 1967 Boston Marathon as an amateur as an amateur athletic union or AAU member. So that was like the governing body for running. They're like the running government. I don't yeah. fucking know. She checked the rules and there was nothing it's about like women, women not run. being allowed yeah. to run. There, There's no like men only, co-ed, whatever, nothing. She entered under her AAU number, paid the $3 entry fee and signed in as kv switzer as she always did so this wasn't her trying to be like deceptive that that was just how she signed it apparently her name had been misspelled on her birth certificate so she got into the habit of using her initials instead of her full name to avoid confusion okay so this is how she signed her name on everything yeah i mean yeah why not when Catherine got to the starting line, the other runners were friendly and greeted her and welcomed her. There was no animosity or dirty looks, just a bunch of people getting ready to run 26 miles. And again, they're all clinically insane. Yep. And we love now it. Now we all know this. However, once Catherine started running, things changed. Well, there yeah, once they realize, oh shit, she's running with us. <laughs> oh, you mean you're not here to hand out water? <laughs> You don't have lotion samples? You're not the Avon lady? (laughs) While there were no rules which excluded women from competing, that didn't mean the race officials were cool with it. When he saw a woman running, race manager Jock Semple, Jock is his nickname, but I refuse to use his real name because come on. He ran after Catherine, clawing at her and trying to rip the racing number off of her shirt. Which is a super famous picture. So if you've seen the picture of a woman running, like it's a black and white photo running in the Boston Marathon with a guy like grabbing her shirt and somebody grabbing the guy. This is her. And I I talk about those photos a little later. And that's actually how I knew of her. But I didn't know her name. I didn't know her story. And I'm like, let's find out. Right. Catherine described the assault in her memoir because this is assault. This guy's like grabbing at her and trying to pull her down and pull the number off. Like it's really aggressive and it's creepy. So she writes, instinctively, I jerked my head around quickly and looked square into the most vicious face I'd ever seen. A big man, a huge man with bared teeth was set to pounce. And before I could react, he grabbed my shoulder and flung me back screaming, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers fucking horrifying and she's describing him in like an animal and he totally is that's That's not how a normal human being behaves well i mean think about like how you are or how she is you know probably a slight like runners have slight builds yeah you know woman and this huge guy is just running at you teeth bared like how terrifying would that be like uh, do, do you ever walk in a hallway and you like shoulder check someone it's kind of this jarring thing and now you're being chased by someone who's screaming at you like it'd be yeah, terrifying I would be terrified Catherine's coach Arnie who was also running in the race tried to protect her but Jock knocked him down 
Good. Jock then ripped Catherine's gloves no, wait, off her good. hands. I, I thought someone was saying, no, 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 sorry, sorry. Down. So Jock, the jerk, knocked down Arnie, the coach, who has finally kind of gotten his head out of his ass a bit. Yeah, and cool. running with her, I assume. Yeah, yeah. And like, so he, I mean, he's clawing her. He rips off her gloves. Like, he is all over her. And then enter Catherine's boyfriend, Tom Miller. A 235-pound former football player and nationally ranked hammer thrower was also running the race, and he didn't take too kindly to a dude assaulting his girlfriend. Thank God. Tom threw Jock to the fucking ground. And then Jock himself would later bitch about this saying, that guy's a hammer thrower for cripe's sakes. Like, I think he's trying to, like, protect his, like, yeah, he's threat. Like, he's like, obviously I couldn't defend myself. That guy throws fucking hammers. Like, my God. So while all of this is happening, photographers are snapping pics like crazy, documenting the frightening image of Catherine being chased down and grabbed out while other people tried to pull the man off her. So like Kelly mentioned, there's a lot of photos of this. You may have actually seen them. They're pretty well known. But if you ever see these pictures, it actually looks like multiple men are attacking I'll, I'll Catherine. But it, yeah, right there. Okay. Uh, but it's just jock. So the other men are, are trying, trying to, to get him. him off of her. So Jock is the bald guy in the dark jacket. You'll know him by the crazed look on his face because he looks like it's a fucking though, psycho. I'm pretty sure I, ha- I had read articles saying that like several men tried to assault her. But yeah, maybe it's just because that's how the photos look. And that's what I thought. I thought there were like a bunch of dudes pulling that's at her. I but it's just too, this yeah. one guy and everyone he else is like to trying to race coordinator. pull him off. Yeah. There's also a picture of Tom body checking Jock, and I'm surprised Jock didn't make a crater in the ground because Tom is stacked. Yeah. And then Catherine would later marry Tom. They would get a Good. divorce, oh, but oh well, at least he helped her. Yeah, yeah. I, he, he sounds like he did. He definitely did the right thing here. So good on you, Tom. The photos made headlines around the world. Despite everything, Catherine finished the marathon in four hours and twenty minutes. She said of finishing the race, "Quote." I knew if I quit, nobody would ever believe that women had the capability to run 26 plus miles. If I quit, everybody would say it was a publicity stunt. If I quit, it would set women's sports back, way back, instead of forward. If I quit, I'd never run Boston. If I quit, Jock Semple and all those like him would win. My fear and humiliation turned to anger. So she fucking channeled that shit and it was amazing. Well, yeah, there's there's like later race photos of like her running like with a group of guys and they're all just like running together. Yeah. And like I said, and like none of the other runners were like, ew, what are you doing here? They were all like, hey, let's all run 26 miles. This sounds awesome. Boy. So accounting for his attack, Jock said that Catherine's entry was an oversight and he was trying to correct the air, which like somehow sounds more horrific because he's like. He's putting this physical assault into this almost like cold robotic language. Right. Like, I'm trying to correct it. It sounds like some kind of AI gone wrong. <laughs> uh. Boston Athletic Association director Will Cloney, uh, he had actually rejected the registration of Roberta Gibbs the previous year, whom I mentioned, and that's why she had to, like, sneak in. So he's a dick, too. He believed that women were physically incapable of running a marathon and said of Catherine's entry, quote, Women can't run in the marathon because the rules forbid it. They totally didn't. Unless we have rules, society will be in chaos. I don't make the rules, but I try to carry them out. We have no space in the marathon for any unauthorized person, even a man. If that girl were my daughter, I would spank her. 
gross yeah that's, right? that's real gross also i hate how he's being like well that's the rules i don't make them but i'm also a sexist dick so i'm super into them like fuck off dude he's a gem total gem shit covered gem all the all around now remember how Catherine was a member of the amateur athletic union or the aau and entered under that number mm-hmm in response to Catherine successfully running the marathon, the AAU changed the rules so that women were banned from competing with men, Jesus. therefore eliminating co-ed races. So they, like, amended the rules so that, like, this l- loophole, gross air quotes, that Catherine had entered through was amended. I'm like, I feel like you missed the point. Catherine teamed up with other women runners to push for the AAU to allow women to compete in the marathon. And then in 1971, the AAU finally reversed its no girls allowed policy and allowed for women to enter the Boston Marathon and other AAU sanctioned races. And this is a big deal because, like I said, the AAU AAU originally. Yeah. But because they like they're the governing body of racing, you know, they're the final word. Right. It's not fair. And they totally have the right to, like, be dicks, I guess. They have that power. Fuck it. The following year, Nina Kusick, Nina Kusick, K-U-S-C-S-I-K, became the first woman to win the Boston Marathon. Literally the, the next, next year. year. Yeah, right. But I guess women are physically incapable of running a marathon. It was that quick, you yeah. know? After her historic participation in the 1967 Boston Marathon, Catherine didn't slow down. She won the women's division of the 1974 New York City Marathon, placing 59th overall. She would also run the Boston Marathon multiple times, earning her best time in 1975 with two hours, 51 minutes, and 37 seconds. And I I bet that not having a dude assaulting you really cuts down on drag. And I think that would account for the better time. Yeah. So normally we do a legacy, but because she's still alive, I call this living legacy because she's doing all this right now. So Catherine is a living legend and still slaying at 73. She's done so many amazing things. I'm just going to list them in a bitching bullet list. She was named Female Runner of the Decade uh, for 1967 through 77 by Runner's World Magazine. She became a sports commentator for marathons working with the 1984 Olympic Women's Marathon, and she won an Emmy for it. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Excuse me. She needs to go for the EGOT. Yeah. She's got the E. She can get everything else. She got it. (laughs) I shouldn't encourage her. Uh, this is a uh, there is a set of trading cards called Super Sisters that consists of 72, 72 famous women and Catherine is one of them. Why do I not have those? Please send us these trading cards. How did I not know there were her street trading cards? We've been doing this for over a year. Yeah. We're bad at this. <laughs> I want these trading cards I do though. Too. If anyone wants to get us a Christmas present. You know, if we ever have a hard time picking a woman, we'll just like shuffle the cards and like one will idea. find us. That's amazing. Catherine is also a writer because remember, she majored in English and journalism. She wrote uh, Running and Walking for Women Over 40 in 1997 and her memoir, Marathon Woman, in 2007. Her memoir won a Billy Award for journalism. And like cool factoid, a Billy Award, which is named for the famous female tennis player Billie Jean King, oh, really? is awarded for positive portrayals of women in sports and oh, media. That's cool. Yeah. I did not know that. We, were, we mentioned her in, when I did the tent, the. Uh, in tennis. our yes. 
Not last episode, one before that when I did the tennis ladies. Catherine. Tenacious tennis. The tenacious tennis tandem. That's that should be my like vocal warm up. Tenacious tennis tandem. Tenacious tennis tandem. Okay. Catherine was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2011. Seneca Falls, our favorite place that we need to go. In 2015, Catherine founded a nonprofit called 261 Fearless, which references the number she ran the Boston Marathon under, which helps to empower women, encourage healthy living, and creates a community where women can empower each other. She started, she, or sorry, she stated in an interview that the myths around what women were and were not physically capable of discouraged many. They became, they began, I totally fucked up my ass. Sorry, I wrote something wrong. They began to believe and internalize these myths. Catherine knew that by running the Boston Marathon, she could show women that the limitations others put on them were imaginary. Through 261 Fearless, she is creating a community that continues that mission. She also does speaking engagements, and you can learn more on her website, KatherineSwitzer.com. That's K-A-T-H-R-I-N-E-S-W-I-T-Z-E-R.com. Ooh. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen for, you know, people who don't Whenever I just point, this. like, that's your thing. Something will show up. Even if you don't know what I'm doing, it'll just be Kelly going, yeah. I don't know. 2007 was the 50th anniversary of her historic Boston Marathon run. Mm -hmm. Catherine, with 261 as her racing number, again participated. During this race, she was joined by over 13,000 women running for her nonprofit, 261 Fearless. This time, women made up almost half of the total runners. That's awesome. That same year, the Boston Athletic Association basically retired her racing number, 261, in her honor. So no other runners That's will be issued that number. Basically, when it's racing. like if she wants, it's it's retired unless she wants to run again. I bet and then they'll she probably can still run under her. it. Like, yeah. come on. I am 261. Like, but yeah, that is the story of living legend Catherine Switzer. That's amazing. And I, like I said, I've seen these photos forever, and I found them like oh, yeah. really horrifying. I was like, "That's scary." Because yeah, there's one where yeah, like he's like gritting his teeth, and he's like, Arr. yeah, he looks like that in every photo. It's like he really does. Except for the one look that like he's getting animal. like checked by her boyfriend, he doesn't yeah, look so scary like, in that one. <laughs> <laughs> then he just looks like an old man getting checked by some like ripped young dude god time is i still don't feel bad for him no absolutely not but yeah so i i had a lot of fun learning about her story and what went down at that infamous boston marathon yeah and yeah and so that is Catherine. and uh i really hope if she ever listens to this because she's alive don't hate me we love you you. all of this was love (laughs) all of this came from love and we're sorry that you had to listen to like an hour and a half of me talking to get there, but. <laughs> All right. So, Kelly. I'm thankful for the listeners. Guys. That's right it. there. That's, that's all I got. Right there. Right. Sitting in your you. chair. You Doing behind stuff. the camera. You. You. You, you. in the purple shirt. <laughs> Someone wearing a purple shirt is like, oh my God. <laughs> me? Yes. You. Um, I'm also thankful for the listeners. I really don't have anything else. I used it on the last episode when we record two in a row. I'm Shit. Like, eh. We both said two things we were thankful I know, for. We I did not think that it. through. I didn't think that through. Um, I'm thankful that we're like getting our Patreon shit together. Yeah, we're getting our shit together. Yeah. 
for you. I'm also thankful that I get to feel all pretty in a dress. It's been a while. And we have pizza waiting for us. Oh my God. I'm thankful for pizza and breadsticks, breadsticks. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening or watching another episode of Whining About Hursery. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Hursery, Instagram at WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com, a Patreon, and a Teespring, which if you search Whining About Herstory, you will find us. Get that merch. Get that merch. Mm, mm. <laughs> and we will have, hopefully, a photo shoot slash behind the scenes merch coming soon yeah yeah i got i got i got shit in the works yeah it's stuff in the pipeline and by i she means we because i i'm reaching out to my photographer friend oh, yeah i know yeah. But i'm still a part of it no you're not <laughs> <laughs> all I'm you're just eye candy for the listeners all right, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. Uh, if you're not already a Patreon uh, subscriber, one dollar, and you can see all the crazy shit that was going on through this. We're also going to be doing a scavenger hunt where we're going to hide something like in the video and give clues on our Instagram. And if you get the right answer, you might get some cool swag. So, because we love you, love you. Thank you so much for listening and watching another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.